Thank you very much, uh, Jenny, for uh, leading us in prayer this morning and Jonas for reading the scripture passage. As you can see, we are back in Habakkuk. We're making our way through this little short uh, book and this prophecy in the back of the Old Testament. And so far, uh, what we've seen is that Habakkuk kind of represents a believer who has lost his way. Uh, He is living in very troubled times. He sees that his country and civilization around him is just in shambles. He sees uh, injustice and violence everywhere around him. And he is in anguish and he is very confused. And so he cries out to God and he basically says, what's going on here? What is going on here? I don't understand it. Why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting this nation come in to, to, uh, to destroy us? And what are you going to do about it? And of course, God answers his prayer or his, his complaint and his cry. Last week, we saw that, that God said, you know, you're going to be stunned, Habakkuk. You think it's bad now? Just wait. It's going to get a whole lot worse because I am going to raise up those Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, and they are going to conquer you. And you're not going to understand what I'm doing, but I do know what I'm doing. And this is part of my plan. Habakkuk is chastened by that answer. Uh, what happens to him is he kind of gets a, a, a reset. You know when uh, your phone or your computer has an app on it or, or a program on it, and all of a sudden it's not working, it gets kind of a glitch, what do you do? You, you power it down, and then you power it up again, and then hopefully the problem is solved. Well, that's sort of what happens to Habakkuk. He gets this, this, this restart, and he says in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. He, he kind of understands a little bit that at least God is in control and he accepts that God is in control, that God is God and he is not. What's interesting, though, is that that does not stop him from asking questions. Uh, he's still very upset with God. He still doesn't understand God. And he cries out a second time, basically saying, God, you're saying that a more wicked people is going to be raised up so that they can punish a less wicked people. How can you un- just stand by and let them get away with it? In, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, is he to keep on emptying his nets, destroying nations without mercy? As if to say, God, is he, is he just going to keep getting away with this? You're just going to let him roll across the world, gobbling up one nation after another and imposing his oppressive reign on all of them. And then he waits for another answer. And we saw a little bit of that last week. But that answer comes in our passage this morning. It comes in this text. God answers uh, Habakkuk's second round of questioning in quite a remarkable way, and in a way that actually ends up comforting Habakkuk. It encourages Habakkuk. Because God essentially tells him, look, the Babylonians may be on the rise now, but they will fall. Ultimately, they will fall. And in fact, any nation, any regime that opposes me ultimately will experience the same fate. They will fall because their way, the the way they operate, the way they 
they behave, the way they understand life and go about conducting themselves, it leads ultimately to death. But the way of those who follow me, who trust in me, that leads to life. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this answer together and we're going to see what we can learn from it. Hopefully we will find encouragement. Hopefully we will find comfort in it as well. But we need to have ears to hear. We need to listen to what God is saying if this is going to have an effect on us. So let's have a look at it together. The first thing that God does is, is he contrasts the Babylonians with what he calls the way of faith. And the Babylonians represent what you could call the way of faithlessness. So he contrasts faithlessness with faithfulness. And that's sort of the theme of the whole passage. In verse 4, it says this, See, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not right, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. That's the contrast. And what does he say about the Babylonians? He says that they're puffed up. He says that they're, they're proud. They're self-important. In essence, they're glory-seeking. In verse 16, it says, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. And at the bottom of that verse, it says, disgrace will cover your glory. You see, the Babylonians were faithless because they were glory-hungry. And what does that mean? In the Bible, the word glory gets used a bunch of different ways. But what, it, what it's getting at in this passage here is this desire for significance. In verse 4, once again, it says his desires are not upright. The desires of the Babylonian, and, and of course the whole nation is being personified as one person here. The desires of the Babylonian is not right. It is a desire for self-glory. In other words, they... They want importance. They want fame. They want praise. They want honor. They want to, to be something. It's pride. That's what faithlessness is. And, and another way of putting it is, is, in fact, to say it's a life lived in, independent of, depend, of God. Independent of depending on God. It's a life of independence from God. You're not seeking his glory. You're not living for his glory. You're not uh, conducting yourself in a way that you, you, you demonstrate that you are fully and completely dependent on God. You're saying nuts to God. Forget God. I am on my own. I live for myself and, and meeting my own needs and, and gaining approval and accolades for, for who I am. And God says that way leads to death. Whereas the life of dependence on God leads to life. Now let me, before we get to that side, let me just show you how it leads to death. In verse 5, it says this, Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Now this, this is so insightful, okay? God says that they're seeking glory through self-arrogant sort of self-importance, and that makes them restless. You see, when you depend on yourself for your significance, for your identity, for your sense of value and worth and for your importance, it makes you frenetic. We live in a culture up until six weeks ago or so that was characterized by overwork and over busyness, over productivity, 
We've always got to keep doing. We've got to keep moving. We've got to keep going. And we, we do this until we're exhausted. And then when we're half dead, we self-medicate. It says here, wine betrays him. But we, we when we can't handle life, we, we do all kinds of things to medicate ourselves. Maybe we binge watch television. Maybe we uh, look at pornography. Maybe we eat too much. We do anything to escape it. What's fascinating about this coronavirus period that we're in of self-isolation and all that kind of stuff is that for the first time, many people are unable to be productive as they like. And because they're in this situation where they're not feeling like they're producing and they're not able to, to continue to chase the glory that they're after, they're medicating themselves even more uh, heavily than they were in the past. I don't know if you, you know this, but um, cannabis store sales are going through the roof. Liquor store sales are on the rise, and it seems like there's no end in sight. Even streaming services like Netflix and these kinds of uh, streaming services, they've had to reduce their bandwidth. I don't know a lot about this, but they've had to reduce their bandwidth because more and more people are they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know how to handle their downtime. And so they are just engorging themselves on these self-medicating uh, means. And it's not just because they have more time on their hands. The experts are saying it's because when they don't have the time on their hands and they're not able to pursue the productivity that gave them the glory and that sense of worth that they had, that they become depressed. They become despondent even. Now, why is that? Keep reading in verse 5. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. The faithless is like death personified in this passage. And death is, is always taking. Death is never full. Death is endlessly empty and always hungry. And what it's saying is, is that no matter how much money we make, no matter how good we are, either morally or, or in what we achieve in our work life or our business life, no matter how beautiful we become, we always feel ultimately empty. Um, Andre Agassi uh, was a great tennis player um, during the 80s and 90s, 90s for sure, maybe the 80s as well, and, and he became so good that he became number one in the world, and at one point he had written an autobiography kind of telling his story, and he talks about uh, having reached the number one seed in the world, and listen to what he says, I spend many hours roaming the streets of Palermo, drinking strong black coffee, wondering what the heck is wrong with me. I did it. I'm the number one tennis player on earth, and yet I feel empty. If being number one feels empty, unsatisfying, what's the point? This is the character of 
faithlessness. This is the character of those who turn their backs on God and decide that they are going to depend upon themselves and do things their own way for their own glory. We have this insatiable appetite for glory, but the passage is teaching us that that cannot be satisfied without dependence upon God. And it goes on to show us what happens when you live that way. It, it impacts this further. There's, there's, there's patterns here uh, that are described in these four woes. There's these four woes. Woe, woe. So woe in verse 6, woe in verse 9, woe in verse 12, woe in verse 15. And then finally, woe in verse 19. And these woes kind of describe the conduct of the faithless. And you'll notice that they're all abuses of God's gifts, and that's important to remember. They're good things that God has given humankind that we have twisted by living in independence from him. The first one is, is money. When we are arrogantly restless and enduringly empty, we abuse money. Verses 6 and 7. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Very quickly, put it very simply, Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us that God gave us the world with all its vast resources and he said, make it better than it is. It's already good. Take what I have given you, the potential in this world, and make it better. But we haven't done that. Instead, we've taken it to amass wealth for ourselves. And he says that to the Babylonians, you know, you've pillaged and ruined in order to amass this wealth for you. For you. you destroy people and you destroy creation to build material wealth for yourself. That's the first one. The second one is power. Verse 9, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nets on high to escape the clutches of ruin. And then verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a a town with injustice. Now, I, I shared a little bit with you last week about how ruthless the Babylonians actually were. They stomped on others in order to get what they wanted. They terrorized people. They ruled them with an iron fist and with fear. But why did they do that? Verse 9 is very telling. It says, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. See, the thinking was self-protection. The thinking was, if we rule, we can't be ruled. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and we need to be on top. If we have power, we can't be overpowered. And so they ruled with fear in order to protect themselves from being overtaken. And then the third one is sex. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Sex and sexuality is a gift given to us by God to be used to express love and tenderness and commitment. But they had turned it it into manipulative exploitation. Get them drunk, 
so we can take advantage of them. Why? Just to fulfill my own sexual desires and appetites. And then the fourth one that is abused is spirituality. Now, the Babylonians, they don't trash spirituality. They're, they're not atheists. No, not by any stretch. In fact, they were very, very religious. Uh, archaeologists have discovered that the Babylonians had massive shrines and idols all over their empire. But why did they do it? Verse 18. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? Listen to this. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. The one who makes it trusts in his own creation. See, if you create something, you have control over it. If I build a table, not that I ever could possibly build a table, <laughs> but if I were to build a table, okay, I could build a table, but it would not be a nice table. Maybe a functional table. Anyhow, if I build a table, I have control over it. I get to decide what its use is for. I get to decide where I put it. I'm the creator, so I have mastery over it. Well, if you create a God, then you have mastery over the God. You get to decide how that God serves you. Oh, yes, you may make idols that you uh, sacrifice to and you, uh, you bow down to, uh, and you may make a nice shrine for them, and it may look like you are worshiping them, but, but you're actually in control of that God, trying to get it to give you what you want. You pray to it and you plead with it, but you always, always have your agenda that you're trying to get it to uh, submit to. Now, I went through these four things quite quickly, and I would love to apply each and every one to today and to our modern context. But in the interest of time, let me just point out a pattern in all of these things. What happens when we live independently of God, faithlessly for our own glory, in every one of these instances, people and then even God himself become either vehicles to accomplish our objective or obstacles to accomplish our objective. And so power is used either to stomp on you to get you out of my way or to coerce you to get you to do what I want. And sex is used simply to fulfill my personal desires. And money is used simply to amass my own, uh, my own empire and to make sure that I'm safe. And even religion is used to get what I want out of life and to make a name for myself. You see, what happens is, is that people become commodities they simply become raw materials, objects to be used in order to feed my glory hungry. That's all they are. That's what happens in a culture when glory is found in independence from God. And, you know, our culture, even though it may not seem as bloodthirsty as the Babylonians and as sort of brute force oriented as the, as the, the Babylonians, that doesn't make us, us any less glory hungry. Maybe we're not nationally glory-hungry, except during the Olympics, maybe. And in Canada, it's really only the Winter Olympics. But it's, it's not really uh, like we're, we're after national glory so much. But individual glory, we're hungry for it like anybody else. Think of, 
Think of reality TV, the explosion of reality television. People want fame, and they're willing to do the most ridiculous things to put themselves on television in order to be famous. Frankly, some of these uh, apps, like TikTok apps, uh, where people can post videos, or Instagram, where people can become influencers. I'm an Instagram influencer, whatever in the world that means. We do it in order to gain notoriety and to gain fame. Even the the need for likes on Facebook, when you put up a picture and you see how many people liked it, it feeds the ego, the glory hunger. I'll give you a personal example. I, one word, views. I'm not on social media. And and I kind of always in a very smug way, right? Because you can't ever just do things for the right reason. There always has to be some sort of sinful part of it. I wasn't on social media. And so I thought I was kind of above all this seeking fame and glory and the public kind of thing. But then COVID hit. COVID hit, and we couldn't worship in person anymore. And the next thing you know, we're putting our worship services up on YouTube just like everybody else. And what do I do? Check the views. How many views did we get? How many people are watching this? Why aren't more people watching this? What are we doing wrong? Are our production values no good? Maybe we have to change the music. Maybe we have to change the setting uh, and the, 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 the set or whatever it's called. Maybe we have to do something. We need to do this. And you know, it's not the concern over the views isn't necessarily concern over, is the gospel getting out? Are people experiencing the gospel and hearing it? No, it's, it's like, it's about my ego. And the problem is, the glory that we're all hungering for, we're never going to get it this way. We're never going to get it from each other, from you viewing services or from someone else liking your Facebook post or for, from uh, uh, you getting a, the Business Person of the Year Award from the city or the Governor General's Award when you graduate from university or the call that says we want you to be the next uh, uh, member of our law firm or whatever. Um. Listen to this quote from a great book called Glory Hungry. We are broken people looking to other broken people to fix our broken lives. We are glory deficient people looking to other glory deficient people to supply us with glory. Looking to other people to provide for us what they lack themselves is a fool's errand. It is futile to look to other glory-hungry people to satisfy our glory hunger, and doing so leaves our souls empty. And not only that does it leave our souls empty, but it turns us into users, users of God's creation. People, even things, are just here for me. So what's the solution to this? Well, verse 14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you cannot take away and remove the hunger for glory that you have. The Babylonians couldn't, you couldn't, I can't. We're all glory hungry. We all want that sense of approval and affirmation that says we're worthwhile. 
But the only glory that our hearts will totally be satisfied in is in the beauty, in the honor, in the applause of God himself, the love of God. And what verse 14 is saying is saying that one day, one day, you will bathe in it. You will wear it like a robe. You will breathe it in the air. You will be immersed in the approval, in the affirmation of God himself. And you will stand in awe of that. Look at verse 20. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is not the silence of ignorance, like failure to understand, or the silence of fear. This is the, this is the silence of awe. This is the silence that comes from being in the presence and having the affirmation and the attention and the adoration of someone great. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to, to put a streak together, but let me just use Lord of the Rings again. In the second book, there's a wonderful place where Faramir and Sam are having a conversation, and Sam encourages Faramir and compliments Faramir on, on how he is uh, leading his men as a captain of the men of the, of the army of Gondor. And Faramir is so impressed by that that he actually says, you know, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. And it's true. To have someone that you highly respect, someone of great high standing, to affirm you, is a remarkable thing. I mean, <laughs> to have someone you value, value you, is a most glorious thing. Well, how do we get that? Well, by faith. We're finally back to verse 4. It says, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, or other translations say the righteous person will live by his faith. Now, these are familiar words to people who are Christians uh, and know the New Testament because they've heard these words spoken by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, even the book of Hebrews uh, quotes this passage as well. And what it means is that you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by your accomplishments. You're not saved by your performance. You're not saved by your morality. You're not saved by your intellect. You're not saved by your bank account. You're not saved by your physical beauty. You're not saved by your kindness. You're not saved by being considerate. You are saved by one thing and one thing only, by the grace of God Almighty. And you don't get glory that way either. None of those things provide the glory either. You will be left empty at the end of the day, just like Andre Agassi, who had made it to the absolute top of his profession. No, the way you get it is through faith. The way you get it is through the gospel. 600 years after Habakkuk, there was another faithful one who stood before the faithless oppressors. Jesus Christ stood before Pilate and he was arrogant and he was self-important. And he thought these Jews were silly, subhuman, uh, 
pain in the neck people that he had to rule. He couldn't wait to get out of Galilee and get a better posting, or sorry, not Galilee, out of Judea and get a better posting in the, the Roman Empire. And he actually aligned himself with King Herod, who was the king of the Jews, who abused money and power and sex and spirituality for his own purposes and for his own gain. And they did something to Christ. They poured out injustice on him and violence on him. They abused him and eventually they killed him. But the wonderful thing about God is, is that in his justice, he exploited their injustice to give his justice to his son so that you would not have to face justice for your selfish, glory-hungry life. Let me try to say that again. That was a mouthful, almost a tongue twister. God in his justice exploited their injustice so that his justice, he could give it to his son so that his justice you would not have to face. Wow, I blew that. Let me try that again. (laughs) Cut. In his justice, God exploited Pilate and Herod's injustice in order to pour out his justice on his son so that you would not have to face it. So that rather than face that justice, you could bask in his glory, in his approval. You see, the just live by faith, meaning that when you look at Jesus Christ and you see that he lived the life you should have lived, he died the death that you should have died, when you put your trust in him, God appropriates Jesus' perfect life to you. And when he looks at you, You have his full approval, his full affirmation. The love that he has for his perfect son, he has for you. And you can live in the certain knowledge of that love. You don't have to chase glory for yourself because you are more glorious to God than you could ever imagine. And you can have that now. You see, you can experience that now. That's why, that's why it says that the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. This is daily dependence upon God and his grace. And when you live in daily dependence upon God's grace, that glory hunger that you and I have, it can be satisfied right now every day so that you don't need to check the views. You don't need to build the empire You don't need to look at your crumbling business around you and think to yourself, well, what am I going to do now? Who am I now? If this is falling apart, I don't know who I am anymore. And no longer do we have to use people. No longer do we have to expect to get back from people when we are kind to them, when we are generous to them, when we are loving to them. No. We do it out of gratitude to our God for what he's done for us. It's the path to life, friends. The just will live by his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the wonderful gospel that promises that we are glorious in the sight of our creator through Jesus Christ. 
and that enables us to live selflessly rather than selfishly. Pound that truth deep into our hearts, Father, so that during this crisis and always, we would have eyes to see those around us who need kindness, who need generosity, who need understanding, who need patience. And may we give it the way you have given it to us in, in the way we interact with others. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.